Brooklyn, New York. I'm Adam Teeter. And in Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Jabal. And this is the Vine Pair Podcast. Zach, how you doing? Pretty good, man. You know, feeling feeling settled into a new house. Uh, it's uh, you know, it's almost uh, it's it feels like spring is really really here in Seattle. It's a nice sunny weather. Some rain nice. too, because why not? I got to mow the lawn, which oh, that was not a thing I was I was totally prepared for. I, it was my <clears> least well, pretty much my least favorite chore as a kid, and it has returned to my life after like twenty years away. Oh my gosh! Well, I did something that I that you are going to be proud of me for. Uh huh. Oh, I know what this is. Guess what I did. I took a picture of a bottle of wine at a restaurant. I know. I was so excited. It was kind of embarrassing how excited I was by this. I mean, you know, that's, I don't, I hate doing it. It's like not my thing. I, I want to be in the moment and enjoy, which is why I always forget some of the things that I drink. Um, but I, you know, was, I was, I was feeling good. I ventured into, uh, to Manhattan from my Brooklyn, <laughs> from Brooklyn yeah. and, uh, went to two places that I really enjoy in the East village. First, um, have to shout out i went to mr paradise they were one of the people that we had on the podcast really early on yep. the beginning of the pandemic um and so i went to see how they were doing um and had a delicious cocktail they just added to the menu called dinner at coat which i didn't ask if it's in reference to coat the restaurant but felt really weird that that was the name of a cocktail and yet they're nowhere <laughs> nowhere near the restaurant but and they have yeah, nothing to odd. do with it but it was a i mean a really really delicious cocktail um and then went down the street to kindred which you know obviously we've had them on a bunch too they're good friends and alexis uh you know one of the owners in psalms brought out a bartolino classico and it was just really delicious and i was kind of feeling really good it was like we're sitting outside like my wife and i and our friend lena and i was just like i gotta take a picture of this label (laughs) so i did so did you think of me when you took the picture i did and then i especially thought of you when i posted it on instagram (laughs) Because I also don't do that. Excellent. I'm not about po- – you know, I I almost never yeah. post bottles on Instagram. But, um, yeah, I just – I don't know. I was in a, feeling happy and was like, oh, this is – I mean, it felt <laughs> it felt so normal too. I mean, it was yeah. – that, that I mean, Saturday in New York City was the probably first time it really has felt normal. And the city felt very alive. Like cool. throughout the day – we walked around throughout the day and every place was just brimming with people wearing masks. But brimming with people and then, you know, luckily, I mean, it's lucky that I'm, I knew the people. There's no way we would have gotten sat at Kindred. Um, but it was it was a really nice experience to feel like – and everyone who worked in restaurants felt like they were in really great moods too, right? It just felt like, okay, like we're, we're, we're coming back. So it was awesome. What about you? Well, so I have both uh, – I have news on that front and also on uh, on the drinking front, I guess, or I would okay. say. So I actually had uh, – a. I guess a job interview yesterday. It was my first time back in a restaurant. Wow. Uh, like not just picking up takeout uh, in, you know, over a year. Uh, I won't go into more details because uh, I don't know if I'm going to be out for the job and I don't know if I'm going to take it. But, uh, but it was, I just, it was like a restaurant. There were people in it. And I was like, my God, I really, really missed the energy. And yes, you know, it's definitely weird. Everyone's masked, um, you know, except when they're at the table and like, it feels a little strange for sure, especially for me, because I haven't put myself in that uh, in that setting. But it was I was just like, God, I miss the energy of being in a restaurant, both as a, as a diner, but especially for me as a professional, because it was such a part of my life for so long. And it was I don't know if that <laughs> I don't know if I was just kind of like, uh, you know, caught up in the moment. But I was like, I could work here like this would be cool. I would like to serve people wine. I miss doing that. Uh, my wife is sick of me doing like, you know. So let me show you the bottle, and uh, not not that I actually do that, 
but uh, <laughs> it was uh, it was great. And I, I the wine I had recently that I was excited about um, among a few is uh, I had a, a rosé made by a friend of mine, uh, Leah Jorgensen, who's a winemaker down in uh, Oregon. Uh, it's a rosé of Cabernet Franc. Uh, Leah, I think, is one of the more uh, she's very uh, passionate about Cabernet Franc as a variety and makes uh, a rosé. She makes a, a number of different red wines and also uh, a white wine from Cabernet Franc, which I also very much love. And uh, it was just, you know, it was like one of those things where um, one of the privileges, as you were kind of alluding to in its own way of this job and, and of this industry is, you know, you get the opportunity to have wines or beers or, or cocktails or things like that made by people that you know and like. Uh, and that is really fun. Um, I mean, it's hopefully something that, that uh, you and I are able to convey sometimes to listeners or when I was in restaurants, you know, able to convey to guests. But there is something really um, delightful about being able to not just enjoy a drink, but enjoy a drink made by someone who you like. And that's a that's a cool privilege in this very this much kind of world. Very much. Well, um, I'm going to go ahead and bring on our guest for this week, which we, we've had on before. but We're super thrilled to have on again, which is Eric Asimov. Uh, Eric, welcome so much to the podcast. Thanks for having me back. Of course. Thanks for coming back. And uh, I'd love to just start off before we jump into all of our questions because we, you know, Zach and I always have this conversation about what we sort of consumed recently that we've really loved. Is there anything uh, that you want to chat about? Well, like you, I've been I've been going to restaurants for the last few weeks for the first time in, in you know, God knows when. And yeah. it's it's such a joy to 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 get back in, in to that that simple pleasure and, and, um, you know, enjoy it without fear of, of, um, harming restaurant personnel or, or other people. And, um, it's, uh, it's just made me so happy. And, and I confess it pretty much for the last year, I've done little, but post bottle shots on Instagram. So, <laughs> It's just my it's my weird thing, Eric. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm one of I don't know why one of those guys. <laughs> I, I'm not judging the people that do it at all. I just never think to do it. I'm not I'm really bad at social media. Actually, I think I'm like quite bad at it. It's true. Like Vine Pair does a great job. Adam Teeter, less good. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if posting badly framed shots of bottles on Instagram constitutes being good at, at <laughs> social media. But it's it's what I can offer. I love it. Um, so it's so it's so great to have you back. I mean, there's so much stuff we want to talk about with you, especially uh, in terms of you know how everything has evolved in this last year. Um, but I think one of the first things we want to talk about is a general conversation about how you may or may not have seen your readers' sort of taste preferences evolve. So one thing that I was really curious about is like we've been looking both at the VinePair Insights data we have, as well as sales data, which really showed that during the pandemic, there was this return to sort of what we call comfort food wines. So yes. in the same way, right? The cabs and the Merlots, the Chardonnays. Yes. Like, did you see that as well? And were you receiving questions from readers asking you to write more about those? And, and did you adapt your coverage if that was the case? No. Um, I, I would say that, uh, well, first of all, very early into the pandemic, I did an article on, on comfort wines mm -hmm. uh, because I, I sensed that people were going in that direction. And, um, you know, the people I talked to, a lot of whom I confess uh, were in the wine industry, you know, they, they talked about their own comforts. Um, right. But. I, I frankly don't know what 
what my readers are drinking specifically, nor do I, um, if I had that data, would I use it to um, shape my coverage? Mm-hmm. You know, I, I'm my thinking, my role in, in my mind is to introduce people to things that they they may not have considered. So it's not just to to give them what they think they want, but to offer them something that they didn't know they wanted. And and so I'm not really, um, you know, catering to to where they're going. But there you know, there may be other reasons why you see an uptick in in consuming those kinds of familiar wines. Um, And and a lot of that may have to do with um, online shopping where, you know, you're kind of left to your own devices for the most part. So you're going to, you're going to pick something that you know about rather than something that's suggested to you that you've never heard about. And you also, you know, for the last year or so, we, we've not had the, um, you know, the the voice of the sommelier in people's ears saying, uh, well, if you like that, um, you should try this. And, and you know, the, the, the act of introducing people to new and different wines in restaurants that, that I think plays such a, an important part in, in wine education in this country. It's interesting. You, in, in this one answer, have touched on almost everything we want to talk about with you. Um, but but w- so one of the things I want to talk about first is, you know, um, I, I completely understand what you're saying in terms of the, you know, not adjusting your coverage. That makes total sense. What I'm also interested in, though, is, you know, there's been so many articles touting, you know, the move to online commerce, the move to online commerce. It's the, fu- the future is here. I mean, I can't tell you how many pitches we've received of like, it's only going to get bigger and all that kind of stuff. And I have always wondered, and Zach and I've talked about this a lot in uh, on the podcast, is while that's really good in some ways, how is that going to ultimately impact discovery? So, you know, I love the wine shop. I love walking into the wine shop. I've, I've always been one of those people that is not scared to talk to someone. So I recognize a lot of people jump on their phone in the wine shop and do their own research and are like scared because there's there you know there's some fear that someone's going to sell them something that they don't want because they think it needs to be moved or something. But I like talking to people and I've discovered amazing wines that way. But I feel like the more it's just going to go, we go online, it's going to be these algorithms that push you know in the same way that it works on Amazon, right? You you ultimately wind up buying all the Amazon products because that's where the big margins are for that retailer. Do have you thought about that? And what do you think? are the positives and the negatives of this move to more, you know, consumption of online alcohol sales, especially wine? Well, um, I, in, in general, I, I kind of, uh, mentally divide the wine buying public into two large groups. Um, one group is, uh, not that curious about wine. They like it. Um, they want something that's pleasant to drink, that's inoffensive, um, but they're essentially just looking for uh, uh, an alcohol delivery system that they can that they can enjoy. Um, these people who may make up supermarket buyers and you know go going to the the nearest uh wine shop without regard to um you know uh 
comparing to find the, the best wine shop, they may very well uh, en end up doing most of their buying online because you know it's it's simply more convenient the way buying from Amazon is. Um, the other group, which I think is smaller but but more ardent, are are the real uh, dedicated wine lovers who are are curious about their what they're drinking, are are interested in in where it comes from, um, how to serve it best, uh, who made it, how the grapes were grown, and how the wine was made. Uh, all of these kind of uh, nerdy details. Um, I, I'm not sure that they're going to kind of default into um, buying from, you know, the, the, the equivalent of the, the supermarket, the wine.com or Drizzly or whatever services um, seem, seem to be the easiest and most convenient. Uh, they may be buying, they may be sitting at a computer ordering from uh, a wine shop in their city um, or from a, a good wine club or, or some other, uh, or direct from a producer. But I don't, I don't think they're going to kind of wholly um, give up the, the, uh, the task of selection to, to an algorithm. Um, and from what I, you know, from just judging from, from whether it's Amazon or Netflix or, or any algorithm, uh, you know, they're, they're just so also basically lame that, you know, you're <laughs> never going to, um, um, find, find some kind of, um, computer generated substitute for, for actual exploration and, and personal decision-making. Interesting. Okay. That makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah. And I, I think this is interesting because, you know, you talked about this and in this context, we've talked about it a lot. Uh, with the, you know, retail and, and people buying wine for off-premise consumption. But, you know, a thing you wrote a couple, uh, I guess now almost you know, two months ago, that that hit home to me in part because I wrote something about this for Vine Pair uh, also, and we, Adam and I have talked about this, is what the role of, of the dedicated wine professional, sommelier, wine director, et cetera, in restaurants will be moving forward. Um, obviously, we're still on discovering, you know, uh, the restaurant industry has been through an incredibly traumatic last, you know, 12 months or 13 months or whatever. And in different places, it's coming back differently. But do you think that 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 piece that you just mentioned, Eric, the fact that, you know, people do still want to explore, they do want to discover, and they need, in many cases, someone to help them with that will provide a uh, space for dedicated wine professionals in restaurants? Or does it really feel like an endangered species at this point? No, I, I don't think it's endangered. Um, I think that, you know, we've really gotten used to it and it may not come back immediately. But I think, you know, starting with high end restaurants, e e so many, so many restaurants have, you know, sold off part of, part of their wine inventory just for, for survival. <laughs> and um, I, I think as they reopen, particularly high-end ones, they're going to want to uh, build it back up because wine is a, is a profit center. And, um, and, and uh, wine directors, sommeliers, sommeliers, they, they help to generate those profits. So the, the big restaurants that 
are are able to afford them are going to uh, hire them right back uh, if they've ever left. It's really the the middle range restaurants where, um, you know, you're going to I think you're going to see um, people doubling up. Uh, you may not have uh, one person solely acting as wine director. They may be um, serving tables. They may, um, you know, be taking on other sorts of managerial tasks. But, you know, there's going to be some period of reckoning for restaurants as they try to get back on on their feet. Um, it'll be interesting also to see, you know, where where restaurants are are opening, um, you know, it's, a, it's in my uh, household. We've just been debating, you know, whether whether Manhattan is ever going to come back and what it's going to look like. And you know, given the um, the 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 real estate, the rental prices, and the seeming refusal of a lot of landlords to kind of um, you know, bargain or, or relent on, on, on leases. Um, I don't, it's going to, I don't really see restaurants returning to Manhattan immediately um, in, in the way that uh, they were here. Well, I think that what's interesting about that, Eric, is I definitely think they, if they do return at least anytime soon, right, they're going to be backed by big restaurant groups. It's people with right. like large piles of cash. Yes. And yes. And like, is that what we want? Probably not. But those, but those restaurants also cater to to business clientele. Yes. And we don't know if the business clientele is going to be back in Midtown Manhattan. You know, it's uh, it, it's it, it's just going to be really um, interesting to see how that yeah. that plays out. I mean, the the one thing I'm I'm curious about is, so I understand sort of some of the high end places, you know ultimately probably adding psalms but what i've heard from a lot of my peers in new york that, that were psalms is that at least for now even at these high-end restaurants they're being asked to also act as servers or so they're being asked to yes. run food right and a lot of them don't want to do that and yeah. so they're basically leaving the profession and so my my sort of curiosity here is is that going to last for too long where enough of them leave where we're just going to ultimately wind up with like the song will come back. I, I don't think the song is never going to come back, but we'll come we'll wind right. up with a whole new generation of songs. Yeah. We, we may Z, have right? this fallow period. Um, you know, a lot of uh, even before the pandemic, you know, a lot of people um, sought success as, as a song so that they could move on to a less demanding job. I mean that was kind of the that was the the model for um you know the the MS before uh, all all the shit of the last year um and I think yeah I you know it's it, I, I I agree I think there's just going to be this period of 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 sorting out where you know restaurants are going to have to see where they stand they're going to have to measure you know who's coming in, what their what their uh, clientele wants, who who they are, what they can sustain, and how they can build back. But um, you know, I think the the last year has just exposed how fragile the restaurant business is, and you know, I'm not sure that that 
everybody is going to want to jump right back into it the way it was. So one other question around that that I'm curious about, and I'm wondering if you've heard similar things that that Zach and I have heard, is one of the – is I think you know people are, are trying to figure out where they're going to wind up. And so a lot of people obviously who are former Psalms are moving into um, you know peripheral professions and some Psalms are moving into sort of winemaking. And right. I've heard blowback from winemakers who are saying, why are they doing this basically, right? So like I went to school, I did all these things, I've had apprenticeships, but because this person was a famous sommelier, they think they can put their name on a bottle and basically be equivalent to me. Are you hearing that too? Or is this just a bunch of like people who are complaining? <laughs> like, is there enough no, room I, you think? I, or- I haven't heard that, but you know, it's, I mean, what's bitterness and, and recriminations is just part of the wine business. I mean, <laughs> you know, I mean, there's always resentment, you know, who, who I mean, a, 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 a third generation farmer in, in, in Napa Valley is, you know, sees the, uh, you know, the medical parts billionaire come in and buy right. up and, and charge, you know, hundreds of dollars for a bottle of a wine that's never been made before. And, um, you know, I mean, sadly, uh, them that has gets more. Um, I mean, I don't know that, that people are going to buy a wine because it has a, a, uh, a sommelier's name on it, but it's a foot in the door. I'm curious, you know, you, you mentioned, uh, we've talked a lot about sort of the, the last year for, for the restaurant industry and that one, and, and to some extent for consumers of wine at home in general. But what about from the production standpoint? Because obviously, you know, it's been a, a challenging year and it goes beyond, of course, just the pandemic, although that's a big part of it. But, you know, we had these um, tariffs that were uh, imposed on uh, a number of different European imports. We always had you know, a devastating fire season in California um, and other places as well. We have, you know, more recently, uh, you know, really bad frost events in France and other parts of Europe. Like, is it just that everything has felt shaky because the last year has been so, uh, so unstable or, or, or does the wine industry feel like it's a little bit in a shaky place uh, as a whole? I know it's very hard to generalize, but I'm going to ask you to do it anyhow. <laughs> well, um, you know, there was so much uncertainty in the wine industry and, you know, going back a year ago, um, you know, the, the, the method of, of uh, sales and, and distribution had just been completely dis- disrupted and nobody knew what they were going to do. But um, I think American producers just proved amazingly adaptable at, at at pivoting and you know we were talking about uh, direct sales before um direct selling i think uh, on the part of of wineries is is here to stay um they were so successful in in adapting uh to that that i i don't really see any reason for uh for them to to uh give that up um and it did turn out that the the fires caused far more um uh problems than than the pandemic did as far as as production you know um it it was just uh tremendously disruptive and just if you look at at fires as part of um you know the overall effect of of climate change whether it's uh uh 
uh, late frost in, in Europe or the um, wildfires in, in, on the West Coast. I mean, every every year it's going to be something now until um, until producers and, and growers figure out how how best to adapt to that. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So one other thing I wanted to sort of talk to you about, obviously, is visiting these wine regions, um, obviously, is a, is a huge part of all of what we do. And yeah. for the last, you know, year and a half, almost, we haven't been able to. How has that affected your own job? Well, it's, you know, like, like the wine producers, I've had to uh, adapt and, and pivot. Um, I mean, I had a, a bunch of major trips planned in, in 2020, all of which were, were going to yield multiple stories. But, um, you know, I, I had to move as the, as the news moved. And so I, I ended up writing uh, pieces that I, I never would have imagined, um, comfort wines, um, drinking alone, other other uh, issues of the pandemic. Uh, and one in particular for me, um, you know, I've always said that um, writing about wine has has made me feel connected to to nature in a way that I never ever would have uh, experienced uh, basically living in a city and uh, most of my life and um, you know and that's kind of um, uh, restored each year when I visit wine regions and, and walk in vineyards and, and smell the air and, and smell the, uh, you know, the, the life that's, that's around me and, and um, am taught, uh, educated by, by farmers about how, how they, um, you know, go about managing and, and, uh, and, and nurturing a, a, a vineyard and, um, and it, that has proved so valuable and meaningful to me that I really felt the absence, um, you know, in the middle of, in the middle of uh, the summer of 2020. Um, you know, it, it it was a little bit like I remember. You know, I've lived, I've grew up in in New York. I've lived near water all all my life, except for. Uh, a brief amount of time I spent in the middle of the country um, in Chicago. And even though that was there near Lake Michigan, just not, not being near an ocean w- gave me a, a really kind of unpleasant physical sensation, almost a, a claustrophobia. And, and I had that same feeling this year. Yeah. I mean, do, do you have, do you a, have a, some? A, yeah, I was going to ask, or, or Zach, you should ask, but any place you want to go soon. Well, yeah, I was just, I was going to ask if you had anything lined up. Yeah. Um, no, I don't have anything lined up yet. Um, I'm still kind of, I'm, I'm planning to go to a major tasting in Atlanta in, in late June. That's, that's that not the high like museum the thing. No, it's okay. just, a, it's a private thing. Oh, cool. Um, <laughs> <laughs> You're not invited, Adam. Sorry. I know. Clearly uh, not. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm, it's, it's not my wine. Um, Otherwise, I'd invite you. <laughs> but um, you know, I need to go to the I need to go to the West Coast um, mm-hmm. because you know, ordinarily I would have been out there uh, uh, at the fires, you know, just looking right. at the the after effect. Um, and I'm holding a bunch of plane tickets from from last year, so um, yeah, <laughs> I, I eventually will be will be traveling. 
but yeah, I mean, I mean, I have so many places that I that I want to go, and um, you know, part partly you're still not able to. Uh, I know France said that if you were fully vaccinated, you could you could uh, come to France this summer, but um, you know, it it all depends on what else is is going on. Are they still going to be in lockdown because of their um, you know, deficient vaccination program. Uh, what about the rest of the EU? Um, so, you know, right now it's just going to be easier to to travel domestically. Yeah. And it's not as if there aren't plenty of things to see and do uh, in the U.S. when it comes to wine. I know uh, you just wrote about New York State wines. Um, a yes. That Adam often expounds upon. Um, I obviously encourage people to go read that. But but as far as what's going on in, in your home, both your home states, what what is it uh, that in particular people should be aware of? You know, as I uh, wrote, New York is is the least known great wine region in, in the U.S. and it's it's singular almost because it's it's probably the leading cool climate wine region. A lot of a lot of places in on the West Coast you know, claim to be uh, cool climates. But if you go out there and it's 107 on a, you know, on an August day and they're getting ready to harvest, it's, I mean, it's just not true. But uh, the Finger Lakes really is a, a cool climate. And when you, when you get a bunch of wines from the, the, the Finger Lakes and they are all, you know, 12% alcohol or so, I mean, it's just it's a very different experience than than drinking fourteen five uh, wines. Yeah, I love the wines of the Finger Lakes. <laughs> and and um, you know, I think uh, Long Island is is coming along too. They went through their California wannabe period, and I think they've uh, emerged from that. Um, I don't think they're as far along as the Finger Lakes in in figuring out what's what's um, what they have to offer in particular, but um, I think they're really on, on the on the path now. And the Finger Lakes are just, um, you know, so exciting. There's just so so much uh, interesting stuff going on up there. I, I, that's a, that's another trip I need to take. Yeah, I've, I've I went a few years ago, but I would love to go back. I'm curious. I saw your article, but for those that didn't, are there are there a few producers that people should look for uh, in terms of Finger Lakes and the North Fork? Um, yeah, um, you know, in the Finger Lakes, there's uh, there's ravines, uh, forage cellars. The you know the old standbys, uh, Herman J. Weimer and and uh, Dr. Frank. Um, there's uh, Red Tail Ridge. There's uh, uh, Empire, um, uh, Nathan Kay and, and his partnership with uh, with Pascaline uh, Le Peltier, uh, Chapica. These are these are just uh, uh, terrific wines, and, and there's a lot more on the uh, uh, on the North Fork, uh, Pomanac, um, Macari. Um, I, I have to investigate the new incarnation of Shin Estate. I haven't had yeah, their wines. They, they've just relabeled to, uh, they're now known as Rose Hill. Um, oh, interesting. Yeah. Then, then uh, you know, there's Wolfer Estate and, and Channing and, uh, and, and Daughter and uh, Lens. And, you know, there's a, there's a lot of good places. Adele. 
Very cool. Yeah, there's I know I, I knew Shin sold, I guess there's a new another new winery out there, RGNY or something that was another sort of I think it's it's a, a Mexican family that also has a, a makes wine in Mexico that just bought oh. that that winery. So definitely interesting stuff happening for sure. Um it's very cool. Yeah, I, I haven't heard about that. I just wanted to ask about um, you know, another thing you wrote recently, which is about uh, non-alcoholic wines and um, right. something that again Adam and I have talked about a little bit on the podcast and, and I was curious kind of I you know I think uh, people going in might have expected that there sort of would have been a like uh, well hopefully not but you know I think it, the expectation is ah oh, wine writer writes about non-alcoholic wine they're going to trash it and I, my sense of the piece and, and their perspective was that it, at, a, at worst it was sort of an interesting category that bear you know keeping an eye on but does that kind of accurately reflect how you you felt about it and, and um, do you see there being a place for this in the wine industry more broadly? Well, I'm, I'm kind of surprised by the huge amount of interest in these wines, but I think there's also a lot of uh, misinformation about them. Um, I think there are people who for, for what, whatever reason um, they can't or don't want to um, to drink alcohol anymore. And they expect that if you simply remove alcohol from wine, you have this wonderful complex beverage uh, that is non-alcoholic. And it's just not true. Um, removing alcohol from wine is, a, you know, a major manipulation and you know what what you are are getting is a compromise at best and i you know i tasted um a, a few of them and yeah they're they're pleasant they're they're inoffensive but they're not what people um you know, are looking for in wine. If you understand that once you take the alcohol away, it's not going to be the same thing. Um, but it's but this is something that can be enjoyed. You know, I think that's an an, an honest assessment and an honest understanding of 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 what it is. Um, you know, I I think that uh, it's also a, a pretty small category, although it's definitely going to grow given um, the, the, the apparent interest in it. Uh, up to now, a, a lot of stuff that, you know, masqueraded as as non-alcoholic wine was really just, you know, grape juice unfermented. Um, but I think anybody who really understands wine knows that, that um, you know, once you ferment it and then put it through, you know, whatever kind of, um, you know, uh, technology you need to do to remove the alcohol and then reconstitute the, the beverage knows that, you know, that's that that's not what any um, conscientious winemaker would do to to make good wine. So you're going to end up with something different. Right. Well, Eric, this has been a really um, fascinating conversation as always with you. Um, I want to be conscious of your time and thank you so much for for joining us again. Um, and yeah, I thank you as well for your column every week. It's it's always something that everyone I know at VinePair looks forward to and I'm sure our listeners look forward to as well. It's always a pleasure. Thank you for having me.
yeah, we'll we'll do it again sometime. Uh, you know, maybe after we've all had a chance to travel and can discuss uh, the world of wine outside of our houses. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Done. Well, Zach, I'll talk to you next week. Sounds great. Thanks so much for listening to the Vine Pair Podcast. If you love this show as much as we love making it, then please leave us a rating or review on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever it is you get your podcasts. It really helps everyone else discover the show. Now for the credits. Vine Pair is produced and recorded in New York City and Seattle, Washington by myself and Zach Jabal, who does all the editing and loves to get the credit. Also, I would love to give a special shout out to my VinePair co-founder, Josh Mallon, for helping me make all this possible. And also to Keith Beavers, VinePair Tastings Director, who is additionally a producer on this show. I also want to, of course, thank every other member of the VinePair team who are instrumental in all of the ideas that go into making this show every week. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you again.